Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. Welcome to episode two of She Dynasty San Francisco edition. We are actually going to be recording outside of our usual studio space. So apologies in advance if the sound quality is not what you're used to. In this episode, I will be interviewing Xanthi Wells. Xanthi is the executive creative director at Google, working on all of Google's incredible innovative initiatives such as Pixel, Google Home, Mini, Nest, Chromecast, and more. Xanthi was recognized as Ad Age's 40 Under 40 in 2015. It was on the list of 30 most creative women in advertising by Business Insider and has won numerous other awards. I'm super excited to learn from her today. I'm here with Haley Stanfield from The Woo. Haley, what do you want to learn from Xanthi today? Well, of course, it's so interesting how she ended up working at Google. It's a huge and very, very well-known company, both from the tech and product standpoint, but also creatively. Um, But I'm even more curious about her life before Google. And when she was working at Pitch, was when it was at one time a very small agency, how she contributed to putting Pitch on the map and what she did um, to really make a name for the agency. Yeah, I think it'll be really exciting to hear how she did that. So she'll be here in a few minutes. Hi, Xanthi. It's such a treat for me to interview someone who actually does what I do for a living. And bonus points, you're a female. So thank you so much for being here today. Sure. I'm excited. So kind of rare in our world, female executive creative directors. Do you know many others? Uh, I think I know a few. And do you feel that the number of ECDs is growing or do you feel like there needs to be more? I think it's growing, but there definitely needs to be more. I don't see a lot of women pushing through that proverbial ceiling and I'd love to see more of it. So I love this idea of cross mentoring, which means, you know, we don't have to compete. We can all kind of help each other rise up. There's plenty of business for everyone to go around. And, you know, for me, this idea of coming together and, you know, just having conversations to learn from each other is what's really exciting, even though we kind of started at a similar place because we both went to the same college, which I loved. We both went to Art Center. I want to hear about your journey because it's so different than mine was. Yeah. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Noe Valley in San Francisco. So I grew up right in the heart of San Francisco. My parents were kind of oddballs who came from Indiana um, in two Volkswagen bugs. They traveled across country in the early 70s. No intention of having children, just wanted to live kind of a wild life in San Francisco. And then I was an accident and uh, 
1978, I was born. My mom and dad were thrilled and excited, and it was a whole different chapter because I don't think they'd ever intended to be you know, a nuclear family or anything. So I understand that you were a creative kid. Can you tell us about your childhood? Sure. Um, I was obsessed with drawing and painting. That's all I did from a young age. Uh, my mom kind of realized that it was an obsession and um, kind of set me on a path at an early age to really pursue it. And she encouraged it and she saw it as an outlet. And I never really stopped. So drawing everything I saw, learning from books and just like sucking it all in, whatever I could get my hands on, I drew. So you had a natural ability to draw? I think a lot self-taught, and then later on I took a lot of classes, but I always was visual. I mean, I remember my earliest memories are how things looked, how people's, what color people's eyes were. I've just always been really visual. I love that you say that because I was a very visual child also. I kind of saw the world in kind of graphic shapes. Yeah. I remember as a child looking at, you know, billboards with bright colors, and also when I notice or meet somebody new, I would look at their eye color yeah. and I've never heard somebody else say that out loud. So I love that you just said that. <laughs> cool. Funny, right? Yeah. And do you have any significant memories from your early childhood that would have been a clue into the fact that you would go into advertising anything that happened as a child? Yeah, definitely. Um, when I was five, I remember making magazines with my friend Elena, my best friend growing up, and we would just we would write all the ads, we would art direct everything, and we'd staple these magazines together, and they were multi-pages of ads, and I couldn't wait to do the nail polish ads and lipstick ads. So I was starting to learn how to draw hands and mouths and noses, and I just loved it. I thought this is the magazines are the coolest thing ever. So literally at age five, you were creating advertising. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and I would watch Friday night TV only for the ads. Like, I just love the commercial breaks. My first clue was um, I used to have this obsession with reading billboards out loud. Oh, cool. It used to drive my parents crazy. We would be in a car, and I would literally read every billboard out loud, and they would just tell me to shut up. <laughs> Copy testing. <laughs> right? Exactly. Something. I mean, that was my first clue. Okay, so I'm going to move on to your first spark. So I understand that in your teenage years, you and I both had a similar idea, and that was that you originally thought that you were going to follow your father's um, footsteps in his profession. Yeah, my dad was a... Uh early Silicon Valley engineer, so um, probably the mid-70s on. He was drawing computer chips at the dining room table. That's when you lay out big scrolls and stencil each connection in a, in a chip. And so I grew up watching that. Um, and he was always, he's amazing. I mean, he's, he helped um, launch companies and sold companies and just a genius, like a recognized true genius. And um, I think we, as a family, kind of idolized him. And I went towards science in my like middle school years. Um, but I remember in high school, I think I was in chemistry and my parents, we used to go out to dinner every Friday night to this one pizza restaurant. I remember the conversation like it was yesterday and they said, we want to talk to you about something. We noticed that you're pursuing science, but it seems like you really don't love it. And we don't want you to do that anymore. We want you to go for what you love because if you're the best at whatever you do, there'll be people that will pay you to do it. So you can have a career and have an amazing life if you actually pursue something and are excellent at it. 
Um, so they kind of set me free from that conversation and I didn't really look back. How lucky are you? My parents had the opposite reaction. They're like, you want to do something with art? Are oh, really? You? Oh yeah. They thought you, you can't make money doing that. Wow. And I think that a lot of young, um, children are just taught that art, they're, they're not explained to that art can be a career. There can be something you can do where you make money. There's this thought that you just like, are going to grow up and be a painter. Right. Or right Cause that's what people see on the street. It's like some artist drawing caricatures and that's the only art they see, I think it's interesting because I feel like in my profession, I often meet those kids because they come to me at the point where they've been a programmer or a coder for 10 years and they're like, I hate this. Or they've gone to law school and they say, I hate this. Right. So I meet them and I'm like, you can make money. You can actually make a lot of money doing this yeah. if you're yeah. really good at it. You don't, And there's no ceiling. Um, and certainly... I wish I, I want to do a better job kind of explaining the career path for people. Right. You know, and that, that's something really important to me. If I ever encounter a child who I find is creative, one of the first things I say is you should look into a career in advertising because they don't make that link. Because I remember being a child who was interested in art, not good at math, not good at anything else. And somebody saying to me, hey, you're creative. Advertising is the right job for you. And me, you know, going to Art Center and having that epiphany of, oh my gosh, this feels right. So, you know, I think it, we have a duty to kind of pass that on to people. Agreed. Yeah. All right. So after high school, you went to Brown for undergrad. Is that correct? Yes. My major was double majored in visual art and art history. <laughs> so... Um, I went to Brown specifically because I had no core curriculum requirements, so it was a free-for-all. You could really take what you wanted as long as you showed up. Um, so I got to take some you know, behavioral science for child development. I got to do econ because I was actually interested in it, but I took one class. It was my only C at Brown. Um, but I got there. I fell in love with the art history department. I didn't in intend to major in it, but I just loved architecture and pursued that all the way through. And then about two years in, I decided to take my junior year at RISD. So I spent a year um, off-site uh, taking comic book drawing classes, figure drawing, painting, all of that at RISD and just loved it um, and really ignited the true core of I want to be a visual artist. I want to do this. Like, I'm definitely serious about it. So when you were at Brown, what did you think your profession would be at that point? I let myself kind of wander a little bit in terms of I wasn't locked into something the day I showed up on campus. I just wanted to explore. I really fell in love with comics, actually, and started following David Mazzucchelli and all these different artists and going to comic festivals and just kind of getting into that world, which was really exciting also as a woman because I felt like there were no women in comics. And... I didn't realize that it was kind of a precursor to advertising and storytelling, sequential art, and, you know, essentially storyboards, really. Did you get a job, or is that where you made the shift and went over to Art Center? After my junior year, I got an internship at Pixar. So I kind of cold-called Pixar back when they were 400 people and said, I want to be an intern. I think this is interesting. And I'd sent them at the that point I had like a couple like sort of dirty comics, which I'd sent them for some reason because I thought that was a good idea <laughs> and got an internship. And that I never, that was amazing. Interning at Pixar and then I worked at Pixar after graduation. So I spent about a year in, it was the Monsters Art Department in Nemo. Um, and when I was working on Nemo, the product, head of production design, Ralph Eggleston said, hey, do you want to draw for Nemo? You know, I know you can draw, like, let's try it. 
And I remember doing, he let me do fish tank exploration. So when Nemo's in the dentist's office, he, there's a fish tank. He let me do all of that drawing. And uh, I was okay at it, but I knew, I was looking at the other you know, production artists. I'm like, I'm nowhere near their level. So at that point I decided I want to come back to Pixar at some point. So I went to Art Center to pursue so, illustration to, actually. To kind of hone your skill. Yeah. So this was a, a bit of a shift for you. Yeah. So this is something that we both share in common. Um, I remember the first time I walked into Art Center. It was a very emotional experience for me. You walk in and there's just this smell that yes. kind of overtakes you. You know the yes. smell I'm yes. talking about. Yep. And just this modernness and this yeah. airiness. And for the first time yeah. when I walked through those doors, I felt like, wow, I can actually be creative and be successful because it was art for the sake of, you know, commerce, really commerce. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a life changing moment. I want to hear about your experience at yeah. art center. I think what you describe at art center, there's a reverence for the craft and you don't see that anywhere else in the world, really. Like when you go there and you're that kind of person, it feels like Mecca. It feels like the most special place on earth. I had a similar experience. I was actually, when I, I started there, I was in the illustration department and I remember at the time it was like a bunch of guys drawing Simpson cartoons. And like, I really was like, this is not me. Like, this is not me at all. Like I like comics, but this is a little too geeky. And I remember going into the gallery and sort of turning this corner and I was in suddenly in the advertising section and I'm like, this is it. Like seeing demographics right now, right. these conceptual ads. Like I thought it was like, I, I wish people knew how to use Photoshop in this department, but like that said, I think their ideas are so cool. And I literally went to the head of the advertising department and convinced him to let me in. I was just like, I'm done with illustration. I've gotten straight A's in this, but it's boring. I can't do this anymore. So you wrote in your pre-interview that um, your mantra at Art Center was be the best that ever was. And it sounds like you learned that from your parents. Is that correct? I would say that, yeah, but I feel like I just was born ambitious. Like I, you know, when it came to homework in school, like I didn't stop. I just, for some reason, that's always been a feeling inside me. There's like a fire. Okay. So after Art Center, um, I want to understand and learn about your journey, your path to getting to where you are today. In my mind, was like a very perfect linear path. Um, meaning that you had this like really nice progression, you know, starting from a designer, going to an art director, to an ACD, to a creative director, you know, and, and then these much bigger roles, these um, ECD roles. Did it feel like you were moving at a good pace through that? Oh, that's a good question. There was so much drama <laughs> outside of that resume that like it, it just it was a, you know, a kind of a crazy diagram. I feel like in my 20s, that's where a lot of it happened. And I was, you know, trying to fall in love and hoping I could have children. And there, I just had a lot of noise going on above that layer. But I could use work to sort of, you know, calm myself down and escape. Once I got to ACD, everything really accelerated for me. Nice. Even getting to that place, I think there was always a fear of like, she's not a manager, she's more of a doer. And why would she want to go into this managerial kind of track? I saw that as inevitable. Like I saw that as the only way to, to um, proceed. So You also had the privilege at working at Shite Day under the legendary Lee Clow. So I, I need to know what you learned from him. I'd want some cliff notes. It was probably the luckiest thing in my career, the fact that I was there. Um, 
I asked him a long time ago, how do you come into a room and judge work from all the stuff hanging on the wall? How do you pick out the thing that is amazing? Because he would always do that. He'd just zero in on something, whether it was like a little sentence or a doodle or, I mean, he was famous for picking out the iPod work from just seeing it amongst many things. Um, He said, I hate to kill things. I don't want to, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to leave the whole room feeling like they did nothing. So I want to pick out at least something and make and build on that. And I think he was a very equal, he treated everyone equally, which I loved. There was no, there was no politicking with Lee. There was just absolutely the work. He didn't care what you look like, what your background was, how you talked. I mean, some people he found annoying, but like in general, it always came down to how good is your creative product. So you never felt like there was any favoritism on of males over females? No, absolutely not. So good to hear that. Yeah. So I asked you about one of your biggest professional snags, and I loved your answer just because it was incredibly honest. And you recognized that when you first were put into a leadership position, you weren't such a great manager. So how did you, first of all, realize that? And how did you take action to correct it? So I was put in a position to run uh, Pepsi at an early stage in my career, and Uh, I remember I was running through walls. Like I was just anything and everything to carry out Lee's vision was my MO. And I got this feeling when I'd start to walk into rooms that there was like a chill and and people would sort of body language would change and I felt it. And then finally, uh, a woman by the name of Amy Panzarasa, who's incredible, sat me down and said, look, I really like you and I'm telling you this and I'm kind of off the record, but you need to change the way you're acting. You're you're just you're just kind of a bitch, <laughs> and people don't like working with you. Yeah, she wasn't a, your boss. No, she, she, was she was just a colleague. She was actually in HR, and oh, I she think, was in HR. Yeah, but she was she's lovely. She's kind of like the creative guru at the agency. A lot of people just love being around her. So she went out on a limb to say that, and I felt like I hadn't gotten that feedback because I was somewhat protected because I was winning a lot of business. So they didn't want to sort of derail me with negative feedback. But at the same time, she went there and said, you need to think about this because it's not working. Was it shocking to you to hear that feedback? Yeah, because I always felt like I'm a nice person and I care about people. And I I was hurt and sad that it had gone that far. So I just immediately, like, I cried for a night. And then I was like, I'm done. This is a fork in the road. Like, I'm absolutely changing my behavior because I want to do this more than anything. So this was a big shift for you? Huge shift. So what did you change? Um, I changed how I spoke to people and also how I delivered feedback. Um, I started to think of myself working for them. Like anyone that I was leading, I was working for. And when I assumed that kind of agency for people that worked for me, it was much more pleasant to be a leader because I'm like, okay, well, my job is to advocate for you and your work and make you glow. Like I've had a time in the spotlight. Now it's your turn. Yeah, I think, you know, one of my challenges when when I was younger as a creative director and I had young creatives working for me, I used to feel that I had to say a lot of nice things before I got to, you know, the constructive criticism. And as I've gotten older, I've I do that less. Right. And I tell people when I hire them that, yeah. you know, now when you present something to me, yeah. I'm just gonna tell you really quickly yeah. how I feel and it's not personal and I'm just gonna get yeah. straight to the point. Right. And I also feel like sometimes when you when you do that, people interpret it as you oh, she likes it. And it's like, no, 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 I don't like it. We need to start over and here's why so I I have gotten a lot more direct, but I feel like I'm never unkind. 
And that's so the key. It's never per, it's never so direct, personal. but yeah. kind. Yeah. Before I took over the agency, I actually worked for these two gentlemen. I was famous for walking into the boss's office with problems. I would walk in and I would just unload every problem on him because I, my role was kind of a dual role. I would, I was the production artist. I was the creative director. I was the art director because they had nobody else who did that. But I also answered the phone to the clients. One day I walked in his office, you know, he said to me, Valerie, you always walk into my office with such bad news. And he got up and he took a Sharpie and he was so pissed at me that he actually drew a line on the floor and he said, you're not allowed to cross cross this line without good news anymore. Because every time I see you, it makes me cower now because you just like to come to me with good news. It's almost like you're like, I'm your dad and you want me to solve something for you. Right. And I didn't perceive myself like that. I was kind of shocked. I think similar to you. And I went home and I cried and I decided that day forward that I had to always walk over that Sharpie line with a solution. Yes. And I did it and yes. I've kind of carried it forward. So now yes. I feel like I can solve any problem because of that feedback you gave yeah. me. And I think it's a really important lesson for people to learn that when somebody gives you constructive criticism, what's important, and I've learned this from one of my colleagues, is whether you believe it or not, people's perception is reality, right? right? Whether you think that you're doing something or not, if 10 people in the room feel something about you, yeah. but you don't feel it's it. It's true. It's true. And so you have a responsibility to either, you know, deal with how they feel or change it. And soliciting feedback I found is the keys to the kingdom. Because if you constantly ask people, is there anything I could be doing differently? What do you think of this? Because I don't want to ever be a walled garden where people just think they have to be nice or not say what's really going on. Because then I'll be out in three years. You know, it's like it's done. (laughs) So you made another shift where you made a very bold move after your time at Shiat going from a big agency to a very small agency. Can you talk about that decision? Yeah, um, I was at a turning point in my time at Shiat. I actually called my recruiter uh, and said, get me out of here by you know, January 1st. And I think it was December 12th. (laughs) She's like, well, we're going into a holiday. Like, are you sure? And I said, I'm sure I'm leaving. She had this pitch job come up and I said, okay, well, this is interesting. My husband is a, is an editor. And he said, Oh, I think I freelanced at that place. They have a really cute website and they do have a really cute website. Um, and, uh, it was within walking distance to my house, and it was an easy. Yeah, I know in LA, so I definitely walked there for three years. It was an ECD role, which I was excited about. So and that it, was your first ECD role. Yeah, so I was always a so it was a director. jump. Yeah, it was a big jump, mm-hmm. and it was a big pay jump, and it was a big move. Um, scary. Were you very scared? Yeah, yeah, because I'd never like run an agency before. So what was the hardest part about the change, that transition from a large agency to a smaller agency? It was incredibly freeing. And when you, you've talked a lot about how um, you care a lot about business results, and I always felt like that was a missing piece at a big agency. Like you get so caught in winning Ken Lions and being the best, you know, making the best manifesto films that you sort of lose the plot. And is it really driving business results? And so at Pitch, it was really freeing because... A, I could green light the work going out of the door, you know, the I reported to the CEO and it wasn't hard to convince him that something was a good idea. It was really freeing because I also felt like I could green light ideas that were right to do and that Shia would have said, no, 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 that's not sexy enough or that's not cool enough. Right. And they were right in some ways, but it enabled me to, to get things off the ground that were smaller and 
just had more tangible results for clients. Did you have to wear more hats? Did you have to roll up your sleeves and do more? Yeah, I think being for the first time the agency kind of spokesperson in a lot of ways was a big change because I was always under the wing of Lee Clow uh, and Rob Schwartz. So it was like I had standing, you know, beneath giants a little bit. Right. And I didn't have to be vocal or seen. You know, I was just a byline on the award entry. What else excited you about the challenge at Pitch? I mean, obviously, it's a pay jump. It's a big um, jump in your role, becoming an ECD, an executive creative director. So tell us about why that challenge excited you and how you achieved that. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was sort of a self-assigned challenge. Like, that's the main reason I took the job, was I felt like no one had heard of it, the agency. And I thought, well, shit, it's close to my house. I might as well try this out and see if I can actually get famous. Like that was like, I said, the first year I want to put the agency on the map. The second year I want to win all the awards and attract all the talent. So it was like this sort of two-step process. And I just said, if I don't do that after two years, I'm gone. So you assigned this challenge to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I felt like, what else am I doing here? You know, and let me see if I can do it. And I'd read about small agencies sort of bubbling up from nowhere. So I was like, okay, now we just need to win really sexy clients and do this. So it was just, you know, nose to the grindstone for the first year and a half. We went from like one client to about 13 AORs. I pitched my brains out, flew all over the country, picking up business, calling old friends that I'd done business with, and just try to load the roster with with stuff, doing some spec work, doing some, you know, work for Pepsi or Nestle or, you know, different other brands. And so I understand that Pitch then sold and you were a part of that process. Is that correct? Yep. And okay, so let's fast forward now. And so now you're at Google as the executive creative director. So tell us what you do. As the ECD of of Google hardware, I oversee all of the Nest portfolio. So from thermostats to cameras to security, we have about 12 products there and services. And I also oversee the rest of the Google hardware portfolio, which is Pixel phones, um, Google Wi-Fi, Chromecast, so I look at everything. So all the things that are kind of shaping our future. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I think Google is a pretty cool company, and I love the inventive spirit of everything. It's always just inventing like inventing things that are cool and solve problems and then finding the audience for them. So, so do you have internal creative teams that work under you? I do. And so you do all the creative in-house? Um, not all of it. We work with agencies. We um, have a number of creative partners. Um, I've got a pretty large team now. What qualities do you look for when you hire somebody on your team? Enthusiasm, integrity, authenticity. So does that come before the actual work? Yeah, because I think I can find the work anywhere. Right. I feel the same way. Interesting. So I have a question for you because this is always a challenge for me. So a book gets put on your desk to look at or emailed. Yeah. And you look through it. Yeah. How can you possibly know what part of the work that this person did? Right. And feel, you know, confident that it's really theirs. Because you know at the end of the day that there was, you know, probably an ECD and right. ECD over them. And, you know, so right. is that a challenge for you as well? Uh, yeah, it is. I think, and you, I'm sure, feel that way. It's really a challenge. I, I try to knit together um all the things like I I feel like people who are really good are often in the room for the next big project. And so I look at sort of the trajectory and sort of knit together the story in my own head of where they were in the agency, how they could have gotten around all these brands. And they had to be someone people probably liked working with if they were invited to do a bunch of different projects. So how do you um, set up your creative teams to succeed? That's a big one. I really try to 
create a space that feels safe, that feels like they can take risks, that I will support them and advocate for them. How does somebody on your team really, really impress you? Oh my God. This one woman just did, and it was so incredible. I told her how difficult it was for me to do org planning. And overnight, she built an org chart and, and showed me the next day of, of how my organization would come together. And What's her role she, there? She's a, um, a senior retail designer. Nice. And she's, she actually went to Art Center. Oh, good. Total self-starter. Um, she came out of the blue with a, something I didn't even ask for. Wish there were more of those. So one of the questions that we ask on the pre-interview is, what is one of the accomplishments that you're most proud of? And your answer was so different than any other woman that I've um, interviewed. And I actually, it was actually really refreshing for me. What is your most proud accomplishment? Yeah, um, it's the thing that brings me the most joy is to see these amazing women reach incredible heights. And they have been so kind to thank me for the encouragement that I've given them. I agree. And it's part of the reason I'm doing She Dynasty. Yeah. So I'm right there with you. Yeah. So this next answer also surprised me in such a good way. I asked you what one of your biggest goals was, and you responded to get married and have kids. And so this is a little bit of an oxymoron, right? Um, right? Because <laughs> here you are super driven with this incredible job and this you know, awesome career. So talk to us about that. I know, how 1954. No, um, it's the best. No, it's, just, it's true. You know, um, from an early age, I wanted to have kids. Um, I always uh, dreamed of marrying, you know, this hunky, tall guy, which I have in my husband. And every day I look at him, then I'm really happy that I kind of landed him. And Aww. I think of it as an achievement. It was really hard for me. Um, I always struggled with low self-esteem. Ever since I've been a kid, I've, you know, just doubted how I look and whether I'm pretty enough or, um, you know, am I funny enough? I have a good body. Like, all those things, I really... They played a big role in my life, um, a lot of those demons, and I think kind of finally finding somebody that loved me completely was, uh, you know, one of my biggest accomplishments. And once you found that, you felt kind of whole enough to then yes. go and do what yes. your passion and was. Yes, and he's absolutely behind me with everything. Like, we've spent my whole career, big part of my career since I was an ACD on, you know, strategizing and figuring things out and hashing it out in the backyard and what to do next and who to talk to and how to approach things like, yeah. And you have children? Yeah. I have two kids, how? one, six and three. And how has being a mom affected your career and how has your career affected being a mom? Uh, I think it's made me incredibly efficient. Like I, you can run through walls as a mom, you can do things you never thought you could do. And so it just makes you so much stronger. Right. So are you like me where you're like texting under the table, like, um, basically a taxi dispatcher trying to figure out how to get your kid from this to that when you're <laughs> yeah. in the middle of the pitch? Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily my, my husband is to stay at home, uh, dad. So that helps a lot. I mean, I don't think we made a very conscious decision for him not to work because the, the running the trains, I, part of it was too much to handle. You're the second woman today that has told me that your husband is stay-at-home dad, so that's yeah. really incredible to hear. Cool. Do you think being a female in your role gives you any sort of advantage, and if so, why? God, this, it's, a hard, it's a loaded question. It is, um, purposely. Yeah. I think women are, on the whole, less about themselves and more about the group. 
I think the female intuition is really strong. Like I feel like I can read a room and I know exactly what's going on. So um, you mentioned also that one of your guiding principles is leadership as service. So can you talk to that? Yeah, I think that you you serve the people you lead. Um, your team is there not to be directed in the sense, but to be um, pushed forward, advocated for, inspired. Um, and how can you make their life better? Like I look at all my creatives and I'm like, at what point did they interact with me, intersect with me in their career that I somehow help them get to the next place? whether it's with me or with someone else. Like I strongly believe in that. Right. And as I told you, when you walked in the room, I had one of my current employees that used to work for you. Her name's LJ. When I told her I was interviewing you, she just was so excited because her interaction with you was so incredible. She actually said you were a mentor to her and someone who really inspired her. So she's wonderful. Really exciting to hear. Love you, LJ. So tell us some actionable advice you have for um, younger generations that might be listening. Um, I think you should stop worrying about being promoted. If you do great work, you will be promoted. It happens. It's a consequence of adding value. Um, So it's what you can do for the company, not what the company can do for you. It's always worked, never fails. I'd say don't be focused on yourself. Um, money is a consequence when you truly create something meaningful within an organization, you will be rewarded financially because they won't want to lose you. That's how to keep great talent. So true. My favorite quote. And the thing that I actually really live by is people will forget what you said, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I think that is the key to business. You know, I, I was looking at open houses this weekend and some agents you walk in and some agents are just right in your face and it's aggressive and intense and like that doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for some people, but I feel like there's a give and take and a, creating a nice feeling around you. And so people feel calm when they're near you and they want to do good work and they feel safe. Ultimately, what does success mean to you? Um, Well, I'm a cancer, so it's all about having a nice shell. Uh, I like to not worry about money and and not be fretting every grocery store purchase. So I think enough money to exist without worrying would be nice. I don't need a lot of opulence, but more just security. Not stressing about it. Not stressing, yeah. Well, Xanthi, thank you for being here. Sure. Thank you for making this interview so easy for me because, again because we share so many <laughs> common ties and bonds. Um, this has been a real pleasure. So well, thank you're you a true inspiration. Me. Oh, thank you. You too. You're awesome. awesome. Thank you. <laughs>